What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. What a lot of people don't realize is when you are subject to the process of court, it's one thing when it finally gets to trial, but what people don't see is the months and months of work that went into leading up to trial. The depositions that you go into are incredibly excruciating because the defending attorneys, they can ask you any question and you are compelled to answer. It was very difficult. Then there's the civil side of it, where then everything in your life is absolutely exposed. Your medical records, your psychiatric records, everything. And because of the position I was in, where I was going after a multi-million dollar organization that had people that were willing to die for the leader, I had to be incredibly fierce in my approach because my life was being torn apart by this. After Warren's trial, I had a nervous breakdown. I had just reached a point where it was just too much. The unspoken shame, the unhealed trauma, the re-traumatization process that I had been through and having Warren's conviction overturned, it broke something in me for a period of time. So yes, it was a very complex, multi-layered journey that I experienced inside of the justice system. There were times where I had a lot of support and there were times where there was no support. Those are the moments where I'm like, something has to change in this process because I know that not everyone can go through what I went through and make it through sane on the other side because I barely did. Even if our listeners haven't heard you speak before this interview, I'm sure it's clear for them that you have such an innate gift for turning trauma into teachings. I could see that, especially as I watched Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey on Netflix I was blown away by your ability to speak of your trauma in such an eloquent and empowered way. But I had so many questions after I was done watching. To begin, is there anything you wish the docu-series had shared that maybe they had omitted? And was it healing to participate in it? I would love to talk about that. I worked really hard with the team of producers on that to curate a place where the facts were laid out. What people don't realize is before that Netflix documentary, I had been doing media for almost 13 years. In that process, I have experienced everything you could possibly imagine. My driving force behind it was always to create an education. In 2008, I wrote a book about my life because after Warren's trial, I was quite surprised at how unwilling society was to believe this was happening. The best way that I could figure out how to create a large-scale education was to write it so that people could read it. And that book for me was a vulnerable way for me to share what I had experienced. I was at the tender age of 21 when I wrote it. Since then, I've been on everything from Oprah to every major media outlet. 
One of the things that I've realized through this whole process is there are certain things that people want to focus on. And it's often been the story of Warren Jeffs, the rise and the fall and how horrible of a person he was. But in my experience, Warren is just a piece of the story. In a lot of ways, he's the villain of the story, but there are so many layers to the experience of it. To my experience, but also the experience of the community at large, the FLDS or XFLDS now, the most recent Netflix documentary was healing for me because I know that the producers worked really hard with everyone to do the very best they could to speak the truth. It wasn't done in a way to blame anyone. It was just the best way that we knew how. It was received amazingly well, even by the people that are from this background. I think I've heard more people say, I learned more from that documentary than all of it to combined because it's the first place where all of the information was in one place. There's so many people that were in the FLDS that left the FLDS. They were told so many lies about myself, my sister, and other people who were out trying to advocate for change. There's so many things that they have to rewrite. That was one piece they just hadn't got to yet in rewriting for themselves. It was so beneficial to the world at large, but also the community. It brought me a lot of peace because so much of the time I have felt misunderstood by the media. The chance to be on people's podcasts or in more intimate settings where I'm able to just show the world who I am, this beautifully imperfect and perfect person all at the same time. I have this love and this mission to make the world a better place. I'm really grateful to be where I am. I get to use my story and the story of my community to create significant change in this world. So that experience to share my story on every media outlet you could possibly imagine, as well as writing a book, being in documentaries, has come with the good, the bad, and the ugly, but more good than any of the rest. I'm so happy to hear that you've felt largely supported, especially as of late. I know that support can play a huge role in our healing. I also know that healing is a super personal process, but from your experience, what's really allowed you to do the heaviest lifting in your healing? This is my favorite part of the conversations and sharing my story because it's also the one that never makes it into the documentaries or the media. <laughs> healing is not linear. And it is so specific to the individual that sometimes it's difficult to have the right language to be able to communicate it. I was struggling. I went through a really intense divorce. I was coming off of this nervous breakdown. I was trying to stitch myself back together. And it was so overwhelming. And I was so overstimulated in every possible way that sometimes the only thing I could do was go to the library with my kids. I would just sit and do nothing. But one day I was looking through books and I came across this book on this Japanese art called Kintsunji. It's this way that they take broken vases or bowls, beautiful porcelain pieces, and they're brought back together with gold. They're melded together. And that was the first moment that I had a physical example of what I felt like. It became my symbol of inspiration because I just needed to find my gold. I needed to find what the gold was that could stitch me back together. The end result of this project of bringing these pieces back together, it turns into absolutely exquisite art. And that's what I've become is I've become an exquisite art piece. Yes, there's pieces, but there's this beautiful gold that's in between that brings those pieces together into something amazing. I tell people, find the streams of gold that bring you together. And for me, that's been everything from incredible wise people like Brene Brown and therapists 
I'm also deeply connected with nature. All of these pieces are what have helped me to create who I am today. If I was to boil a lot of it down, it had to do with embodiment practice. There's so many different practices that I've experienced with that, whether that's breath work, yoga, movement practice, or even massage. Embodiment practices are behavioral tools that promote self-awareness and mindfulness through movement. They can include acts as simple as trained breathing and as intricate as dance. As I was coming through this process of embodiment, a lot of it had to do around sexuality because the trauma that people experience on all levels, it disconnects us from that core of who we are. So there came a point where I had to have a relationship with my body. I get emotional when I talk about this because it's still in process. This is why I love to talk about it is because it's a journey. There's points where I might be a little bit further ahead because I've come across different parts of wisdom, teachings, or practices that have dramatically supported me in this embodiment practice. But the journey of healing makes us all equals in it. I love to share back and forth with people what worked for me and what didn't. But this practice of embodiment was really the first step. And it started with teaching myself how to actually come into my body. My trauma that I had experienced, also the way that I had been cultured, was all very disembodying. It was always about sacrificing your life now for a better afterlife. It was always we were preparing and doing something for our salvation. The culture you were raised in was also literally disembodying you. What I mean is you were raised to believe you didn't even have control or ownership of your own body. Your body was for your husband to stake claim to as he wished. That's an ultimate and constant disembodiment. You're absolutely correct in the way that you said that. It was absolutely disembodying. I also didn't know how to feel at home in my body. I actually hated it because so much of the pain and what I had experienced was because I was a woman and I had a vagina and I could carry children. I went through a time where I was doing a lot of teaching myself how to self-massage because I needed to teach my body what it meant to actually feel good. I didn't realize it, but that was part of the necessary journey of it. It really boiled down to me retraining my mind because when we name our shame with our story, it gives us a huge opportunity to see what we tell ourselves every day. There was a whole entire year where all I did for my therapeutic process was I journaled my shame. I would carry a book around with me and every time a thought would pop up in my head, I was like, whoa, wait, is this mine? Whether that was about my body, how stupid I was, how fat I was, how terrible of a mother I was, or how broken I was, whatever it was, it was detailing that out. When I started to see the patterns of the voices inside of my head, that is what gave me the tools to start to question them. Just as I had questioned the voices of people that were telling me things I didn't want to believe. Just as I had questioned Warren, I had to learn to question my own voices in my head. That led me to a lot of other things, realizing the power of things like affirmations. Ultimately, therapy has been the bedrock of a lot of my healing. I have had the opportunity to know a variety of incredible therapists that have done all different modalities of therapy. Some of them work better for me than others. But that journey where there is a professional that's there helping has been huge. But it's not the only thing. And that's one thing that I love to share with people is, is there's so many ways. Some things work for me sometimes and some things work for me in different times. Interestingly enough, I find myself in a place where I am returning to some of those practices that I started in the beginning of going back to the foundational breath work that I used to do. 
this breath routine, the whole purpose of it was to allow my body to feel safe because I struggled with extreme anxiety and depression. The reality was, is there was so much that my body remembered of the physical trauma, but also the emotional trauma that I had to find ways to express it because it couldn't stay trapped in there anymore. So I encourage people, everything that you can imagine might work for you, try it. If it's dance, yoga, if it's working out, allowing our body's permission to feel. It was such an emotional journey to teach my body that it was okay to feel sad, nervous, or scared. I didn't have to quote, keep sweet like I had been taught all of the time. Whatever the journey is for people in finding the ways to heal themselves, one of the most important things is be open to more information. For a long time in my healing journey, I wasn't because I was so ashamed that I was broken. And that's part of the narrative that led me to have a nervous breakdown. But that quantum crumble happens before the quantum leap. I had to crumble that way because at the very bottom of it, when I'm at my darkest point and all the pieces of who I am are scattered all over the ground, I had to start from there and pick up one at a time. I got the opportunity to question, do I want this? Do I want to keep this? Is it even mine? Or was it given to me by some bullshit person or belief system? And as difficult as that process was, that is the reason I am here today. There is a lot of me that was left in that dark place because it was no longer working for me. I encourage people to consider what that journey can look like. And it's all just a stepping stone. But there is this process of deeply connecting with who we are and our sexuality and learning how to express it effectively. And it's a conversation that I would love for all of us in society to have more of. Part of my journey has been that blossoming. I finally came to a point where I was healed enough. This little bud that I was of this magnificent individual had finally reached the perfect climate and the environment where I could start to open into who I am. That has been the most incredible part of my journey. I get emotional when I talk about it because as this blossoming has happened, I look at the versions of who I was before and I want people to remember to be kind to themselves. I had enough in me to bring me through that process so that I can look back on those old versions of who I was. So I invite people to ask the question of where's my passion? Where's my passion in myself? Where's my passion in my life? Where's my passion in my relationship with my body? Out of curiosity in terms of your healing, can you tell us where you are religiously today? Has religion or spirituality been a source of healing? Or have you strayed from it since leaving the FLDS community? I really appreciate when people ask me this question. There's a difference between religion and spirituality. It took me a long time to figure that out. And I did an extensive amount of religious exploration. I went to all different kinds of churches after I had left. I read all different kinds of religious texts on all different levels. I felt like I had a hole inside of me and that I needed to believe in something. And through that process, my skepticism of the way that I had been raised and what I had experienced, it gave me the ability to come to this realization that I'm actually a very spiritual individual. 
I see spirit in many ways, but something as simple as being able to deeply connect with the earth and cycles of the seasons. To look at the world as a little bit different than just about God and religion. The act of breathing and living and being able to be in a peaceful society, these things are sacred. Religion for me is really just the expression of spirituality. It really should be aligned with people. I'm a deeply spiritual individual. I don't subscribe to religion. I appreciate a lot of wisdom that is in all different kinds of religious texts. I have come to realize that there is a difference even in the wisdom versus how it's practiced. I try to see the wisdom for what it is and then choose to practice it in my own way of spirituality that really connects with who I am today. To be honest, when you mentioned that spark within you earlier, that gut instinct that told you something was wrong, I think that was also a spirituality, a connectedness. I do agree with you because I look at it now and what did give me the ability to see clearly through some of this stuff? I have realized that from a very young age, I was always deeply connected to what I call spirit now. It's this force that is bigger than all of us. One thing that I've realized is anyone that's coming, especially out of high demand religions, cults, or religious environments where it was all consuming, that it's okay for people to have their experience. For the people that choose to stay religious or replace religion with something that's more in alignment with who they are, I so very much appreciate people when they choose it for themselves. And I think that's the most important part of being a spiritual person. I look at my parents and a lot of the people that I grew up with, if they had been able to follow their spirit and their intuition true to themselves, I don't believe it would have happened the way that it did. Because what changed so much for so many people that were a part of the cult of the FLDS is the connection to spirit. As a woman inside of the FLDS, I was so heavily trained and brainwashed of exactly what I was supposed to do that when I started doing things that I wasn't supposed to do, such as questioning or being quote unquote disobedient or protecting my body and protecting myself from being abused, that I didn't know how to act. The connection to intuition was systematically and directly severed. You weren't supposed to listen to any intuition whatsoever because that was the spirit of evil tempting you. Luckily for me, I had enough of it that was innate and enough of it that was almost subconscious that it got me through. The courage helped me to do the things that I did, even when I had no examples around me of what to do. You are such a beacon of light, Elisa. I am constantly amazed how you've prevailed despite all the trauma you've been forced to face. Amidst that process, though, have you gathered, found, or maybe even made some resources that you could offer our listeners? There's always room for developing more resources. And that's something that I love to talk about. I tell people I am an advocate of my community, but also an advocate of people experiencing all kinds of trauma religious trauma, sexual trauma, there is always more work we can do to learn how to effectively create better resources. As far as resources that are available to people that are coming from polygamist-based high-demand religions or cults, there are a few organizations that over time I've had the opportunity to support and to help bring into fruition. The first one is Holding Out Help. It's an organization based in Salt Lake City. I always direct people to go and see what they're working on because they're on the ground working in depth with people that are leaving the FLDS as well as many other polygamous cults that are in the Western United States areas. 
There's also another organization that's actually in the heart of Short Creek itself. It's called Cherished Families. They do a lot of a similar work, but they bring a lot of resources into the FLDS community, educational resources, therapeutic resources, healing resources of all different kinds. Then there's also another organization that has come in in the last couple of years that has filled in another gap. It's called the Dream Center of Short Creek. They've really tackled some of our problems that we have with people that are dealing with substance abuse. One of the things that has come as a serious problem is that when people leave these high demand religions or any trauma based background, it's really easy to mask with substances because their life prior to it had no substances in it and there's no conversations around it. It's really easy for people to fall into very destructive habits around alcohol, drugs, sex, and food, even. Each one of these three organizations that I talked about specifically do different things. But if people are looking for resources around this topic of polygamous cults and getting help out of them, but also for people that are interested in helping support this, they are wonderful people to support. Then we've also seen a lot of really amazing things shifting in government resources. At least in the state of Utah and Arizona, we've seen a lot of government agencies that have stepped up in the last 10 years They've really tried to find effective ways to support the community, but also support the people who are leaving. We have a lot more support from law enforcement, from attorneys. People that are leaving need all kinds of things, whether that's women that need to be able to go back and get their children, men that need to be able to have visitation with their children, crimes that need to be prosecuted. We've really worked hard. And I say we because I've been advocating for this since I left to get to be a part of this, to see the shifts and the changes, the forces of good that are rising up to help change this narrative is absolutely incredible. So there's been a lot of amazing things happen and there's still a lot of work that we have yet to do. One of the things that I've become is a fierce advocate for women and women's rights. I came from a background where they wouldn't have adhered to laws and regulations around women's rights in our nation as a whole, being able to have equality in the way that we view women and their bodies is going to go a very long way in creating a far better world for not just women, but also for men. It will also empower both genders, the ability to take ownership of their own experience and their own bodies. And the people that are in cults or that are in just your everyday life, the more equality that people have, whether it's gender, sexual preference, women's bodies, men and their bodies, the more equality there is, people will take more responsibility for their actions. So that's something that we as a society get to actually change. That's the larger view of it. And then as you zoom down from there, there's so much work that can be done on state levels to find more effective ways to address things like cults and high demand religions. Part of that really is how to more effectively be able to establish consequences for people in the financial realm. Because every single one of these cults and large religious organizations, where their true power is, is in the money. When they're a multi-million dollar organization, they really have the ability and the power to buy off organizations, influence organizations, and more than anything, influence their people. Because if they hold the resources, then the people don't have the control. We are looking at a time where we get to find a more effective way to prevent these situations. Zooming down into my own community and my own life, in 2016, I made the decision to move back to Short Creek. Short Creek was the community that sits on the border of Utah and Arizona. It was founded and established by pioneers of the FLDS. 
for my life, as well as for many years after, the only people that resided in that community were the people that were a part of the religion in one way or another. Since then, a lot of that has changed. A lot of legal action was taken against the trust that held all the land in the area. I was a part of that. I filed a lawsuit against it. Being able to take the control of that trust away from the religious leaders, and it was ultimately taken over by the state of Utah for quite some time. But then it was handed back to people that were from that background, but not involved in the cult side of it still. The changes that have happened inside of Short Creek have been absolutely incredible. You had people that never had owned their home, whose home has been used as a tool against them because if they were kicked out of the religion, then they had to leave their home as well. Now they're getting those homes back and they're getting to have home ownership. And we've seen this change just ripple through this community. By moving back here, we were able to take it one step at a time. We had to take it on a political level. We had to vote in new people into all of our governmental offices inside of the cities so that the people that were running the actual city organizations were people that had all of the people's interest in mind, not just the people inside of the cult. And that was a huge moment of success. I remember the day where we voted in our very first mayor who happened to be a woman. And that was huge to make that kind of quantum leap of progress. We've seen all of these shifts and changes happening, and there's still so much work to be done. The amount of resilience and growth that we have seen in the Short Creek community is so encouraging. I look at it and I realize that it is a wonderful example to the larger scape of America that communities can rebound, that people can rebound. Having our community completely collapse into shambles, watching families come back together and the healing begin to happen has truly been such an incredible gift in my life. And from what you told me the other day, you've got a lot going on, right? Can you tell our listeners what they can look forward to from you? Yes, I would love to. Since moving back into the Short Creek area, I'm working on a way to create a community of people that are all in this healing journey. I know for a lot of people who have experienced trauma, it's something that we all have to work through. We all have to find our community. I tell people all the time, society is really good at coming together to bond over our trauma and what we've been through, but I'm excited to come together in healing. And it's something that we're seeing happen in society. I'll be putting together a series of retreats and opportunities where people can get engaged in this healing journey, no matter where your level is. I'm not going to spill all the beans, but I'm launching my own podcast that is really centered around a place for the people from my community to tell their story and to tell the next part of the story. So much has been told about Warren Jeffs and the horrors inside of the cult. A lot hasn't been shown of life after and what it really takes to adapt, what it really takes to then turn around and create something good in your life. I want to gift that to the rest of the world. Our podcast is going to be called Reclaiming Short Creek, and it's coming out this fall. And it's just an opportunity for people to get the next chapter of this beautiful, incredible story and to see the parts of it that resonate with them, that is similar to what may be going on in their life, but also see a lot of incredible people who have been through some unmeasurable trauma, but are choosing to heal and come back from it and then make the world a better place. 
My hope is that I can start to use my voice and my influence to remind the world of the journey that we're all on together and share the things that I'm working on in myself, whether that's simple practices or enlightenment that I'm experiencing on my own journey. So follow me on Instagram, elisa.wall, and follow me on my website, elisawall.com. Come along for the journey. I would love to have you along. Thank you so much for your time and your insight, Elisa. And thank you for continuing to share all your gifts as well as your healing with the world. Thank you so much. And thank you to all the listeners who are tuning in today. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. There's a little of me in you and a little of you in me. And there's this opportunity that we have to help each other heal. Thank you for listening and being here. It is estimated that there are currently around 10,000 members of the FLDS Church, despite about 10% of the community leaving between the years of 2013 and 2015. Most of the current FLDS members live on one of the four large ranches occupied by communes of church members. The FLDS Church has both a president and a prophet, although those two roles are often held by the same person. The rules and doctrine tend to shift slightly with each new prophet's interpretations and decrees. It is purported that since Warren Jeff's arrest and conviction, the doctrine has changed to allow only certain priested men to procreate. Warren Jeff stepped down from his role as president on December 4, 2010. It's currently unknown if he is still acting as the prophet. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode next week on What Came Next. She was classified as a missing person for 10 years, despite it being very clear that her partner had murdered her. My contact with the case was only through the media. My family didn't have the tools to talk to me about it. There was no victim support at this time for me, which is another thing that I'm trying to get changed, especially for children. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.